Well, good morning again. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. For the message this morning, we're looking again at Romans chapter 1. We're going to have just a, a little bit of overlap, which I think we'll find we'll be doing regularly, just a little bit of overlap, because where you stop and where you start is always connected. So um, if you could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. So somebody brought up a question last time after the message uh, relating to Paul's life and what Paul, Paul's desire for the Romans, Paul's desire to fulfill his purpose for God. And the question related to, uh, are we all called to be a Paul? And I was, I was glad for that question because I want, I think it's important, an important thing for us to think about. And so I'm going back to that this morning. God does not call all of us to be a Paul. God calls you to fulfill the purpose that he created you for. But he calls you to do it as Paul did it. With as much as in me is. And so God wants you with every part of your being to fulfill the purpose He created you for. Paul called people to follow Him, not in the sense of going with Him on His missionary journeys, as much as in the sense of His fervent desire to follow God. And that's what I wanted to bring out in that passage in the New Testament, and we talked about this in the men's Sunday school class just a little bit, um, in the New Testament we find kind of two areas of purpose relating to each person. And one of those is a unifying purpose. So we do all have a call. Uh, my uncle asked me one time, if we were all led by the Spirit of God, would we as churches come together? And I said, yes. I believe that God wants His church to be unified. His universal church to be unified. God wants all people to come together in presenting Himself to the world. But that might not always look like what we think it does. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says there's one God. I should probably have written this down. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And then it talks about a whole bunch of individual gifts that are given to the church. And so there we're talking about an individual purpose that you have an individual role to play in the body of Christ. And then it says that we all come to the, to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God wants His church to look like Jesus. And so there's a unifying purpose that you have, and that's to be led by the Spirit of God into the image of Jesus. And there's an individual purpose that you have to collectively, to bring that into the body and collectively do that together with other believers. And He wants you to do that with everything you have just like Paul did, fulfilled his purpose with everything he had. I'd like to read now verses 16 and 17, which I read last week. 
Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. There's a little word that I want us to catch here in these two verses. It's the word for. And he says, For I am not ashamed, for it is the power of God, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And as I was studying for this, I was thinking about, well, what's the significance of that little word in there? And so I looked up, what does, what does for do in the English language? And it does quite a few different things. But what does it do in this sense? And the meaning that I found was this, with the object or purpose of. So I do this for this. And it gave the example of, I run for exercise. So you want exercise? Running is a way that you can get exercise. I run for exercise. But you can extend that on. Why do you want exercise? Well, maybe I want exercise to lose weight. So I run for exercise for weight loss. Maybe you want to have, um, maybe you want to build strength. I run for exercise for strength building. Maybe you want to gain lung capacity. I run for exercise for lung capacity. But you can take it further than that. In the Colorado mountains, the air is thinner than it is around here. And there's elk in the Colorado mountains. So let's say you're, going, you're planning for an elk hunt in the Colorado mountains. You could say, I run for exercise for lung capacity for hunting in the Colorado mountains, for elk hunting. Now, what's the greatest purpose in that list? Is it running? No. It's elk hunting, right? So if you follow that train, you're doing all this stuff for the purpose of. And that's what that word for is, is doing here in this passage. So if we take it to the end, we say for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. So Paul's greatest purpose, the greatest value that he has is, is the righteousness of God would be revealed. And he says, for it is the power of God. So that's, that's relating to our view of the righteousness of God. It is the power of God to salvation. You can, you can go back behind that and he says, for I am not ashamed. Because he recognizes that fact. And so this, these things that Paul is doing, they have a progression towards this greatest purpose, which is that the righteousness of God is revealed. And then we have, and then he brings that to inclusion, conclusion by saying, the righteousness of God is revealed, the just shall live by faith. Now I want us to hang on to that little phrase, the just shall live by faith. Because we're going to be looking at a lot of negatives today, okay? But Paul is, Paul is setting up in this first half, in the first half of the book of, I mean, in the, of the first chapter, Paul is setting up a beginning for his argument for the gospel that he's going to deliver to the Romans in this in this these passages throughout this letter and I want us to catch the fact that Paul wanted Paul wants the righteousness of God revealed and us to bring in our focus on that and the fact that the just shall live by faith 
because the righteousness of God being revealed and the just shall live by faith is together. And we're going to be working, we'll be, be stepping back now and looking at the wrath of God. Because in the very next verse says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So we're going to be stepping away from the just shall live by faith. We're going to be looking at the wrath of God and the disobedience of men. So I want us to hang on to that, the just shall live by faith in relation to the righteousness of God being revealed. For, again we have the word for, using it in somewhat of a different sense, and it means with respect to, so with respect to the righteousness of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So the wrath of God is part of His righteousness. The wrath of God against sin is part of His righteousness. If someone does something wrong, don't you believe that that person should be brought to justice? In the sense of, in the sense of equality. Your sense of equality is that if someone harms someone else, they need to take responsibility and they need to suffer the consequence. Your sense of equality within you tells you that. God's righteousness, which is the right, His right judgment, says that wrath must be brought on sin because sin destroys what He created to be good. And so an aspect of His righteousness is that the wrath of God is His wrath. Now, it doesn't end there. And that's the beautiful thing about God. He's not all a God of wrath. Totally. So looking a little further into this verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So you have the idea there that the, the wrath of God is revealed against those who have truth, but they hold it or they, they, they have it, so they're, they're holding it in the sense of having it, but they don't respond to it in the way that they should. Instead, they use it or set it aside. They know, they know about it, but they don't act according to it. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And we were discussing this in the men's class, and I'm not sure that I, I don't have the answer to this, but I'll give it to you to think about. And you can think about it. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And what I wanted to, to figure out as I was studying for this was, what does it mean that the wrath of God was revealed from heaven? And it doesn't really say how it was revealed. It just says that it is revealed. And there's some different ways that I thought about that I thought, well, they could be plausible, but I don't know the answer to that. So I'm not going to give you an answer that I don't, that I don't feel confident about. But one of the things that really came to me in this was the fact that as you go down through this pa passage, you see the actions of men, how they disobey God, and as they move in disobedience, how that displays trouble, problems, issues, uh, difficulties, and brings so much difficulty into the world. So is that 
part of the way, at least, how the wrath of God is revealed through the results of human sin. And so when people follow the course of sin, it brings consequence, and that consequence reveals God's wrath against sin. All right, we're going to stop with that part for a little bit, and we're going to consider our word and focus for the day. It is in verses 19, 21, and 28 in different forms. It's the word know or knowledge. In verse 19, it is known. Verse 21, new. Verse 28, knowledge. These words all come from the same Greek root word, which means knowledge in the scientific sense or factual knowledge. That's the base, is factual knowledge. But these words particularly are used in the New Testament more in relation to relationships. So the one in verse 19 has to do with acquaintance. Typical use is acquaintance, like someone you're acquainted with. Verse 21 is used often in the sense of intimacy or close relationship. And verse 28 is more precise knowledge. Let me jump back to 21. 21 is the same intimacy as John 17, 3, which says, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So when Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, this is the word that he used. And then verse 28, talking about precise knowledge, that's often used to refer to how well the believer knows Jesus or God or the truth. So in other words, kind of the idea of how well we are, are learning to know who he is exactly. Like what is he like? So a precise knowledge of who he is. So what should we take away from this word know? Well, one thing I think is that our ability to know as human beings, our ability to know ourselves, our ability to know God, our ability to know one another is essential to who we become. And whereas animals, for instance, are they live lives that are not directed by what they know. They're directed by instinct. But we're directed by what we know. And so we can learn to know about things. We can learn to know someone or something that can change the way we live or the way we think about life. To know in a relational sense is the most important part of life. Two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are words of knowing. They're words of relationship. They're the most important part of life. God's, God's purpose in creating you was to know Himself and others. So God created you to know Him. And He created you to know other people. I have you a devotional study if you want to do it sometime. One of the things that I found helpful, I'm primarily a New Testament 
reader. I read much more in the New Testament than I do in the Old Testament. And a lot of times when I'm thinking about something, maybe it's this idea of the knowledge of God or maybe it has to do with obedience or maybe it has to do with... I'll read through the New Testament. And my, as I read through the New Testament, my focus in reading is to test my thoughts about it. Does this hold true as I go through the New Testament? And if it holds through as I go through the New Testament, then it's a worthy idea. And I need to put it into my database of thought processes. My devotional study for you is read the New Testament with the idea the two most important things are to know God and to know your neighbor, to love your neighbor. Test it. Now, what I'm telling you to do, actually, is telling you to question me. You know why? Because I want you to be spiritually mature. I don't want you to just do things because Philip says to do them. I want you to do them because you know God. And you're following Him. Another reason... Another thing we should take away from it, eternal life hinges on knowing or what you seek to know. And what are you seeking to know in this age of knowledge and the availability of knowledge? What do you spend your time learning to know? And there's a lot of aspects of life that are not the most important thing but they're not frivolous either. They matter. Your job matters. Your work matters. What you do matters. When a mother has her first new baby, she's all of a sudden very interested in knowledge about how to care for this child in a way that's beneficial. That's important knowledge. It's important for me to know how to take care of my chickens. That's important knowledge. But it's not the most important knowledge. And so I need to create a priority. I need to create priorities in my life about knowledge. About what I know. Why am I spending so much time on knowledge? Because it's an important part of the text today. Very important part. And it's a very important part of the overall book of Romans. But let me say this before we leave this subject of knowledge. Knowing God and others as the number one priority will take you out of your comfort zone. It will. Because it demands that we trust. To know God, you have to trust Him. To know other people, you have to trust them. The just shall live by faith. There's a measure of trust that's necessary for us to have the life that God wants to give us. The just shall live by faith. But also, what you do with what you know makes a difference. And so if you look at verse 21 of the text, it's using the same word there of today's text, because that when they knew God, 
So that's the same word Jesus used when he said, this is life eternal, that you may know thee, the only true God. So what was the difference between, what's the difference between the people in John 17, 3, who know God to eternal life, and the people who knew God here in this passage and didn't have eternal life? So what you do with what you know makes a difference. All right. Let's begin reading at verse 18, and we'll read to verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shewed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up to vile, unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use unto that which was, is against nature. And likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Oh, I was going to tell you there was three things that I wanted you to hear as we were going through that passage, and I failed to do that. Um, three things. Key element of the knowledge of God, the progressive nature of sin, and the directional bent of humanity without God. Now, I have a little illustration for you this morning that ties in with this whole idea of the knowledge of God that I want to actually carry somewhat through the book of Romans. And I hope it can be helpful to you. So we've established that knowledge of God is eternal life. The opposite of the knowledge of God would be hell or separation from Him. Humanity is somewhere, is here in in our world making a decision between heaven and hell. We have two cycles of living that happen. We have a cycle of unbelief and we have a cycle of faith. Now, I just gave you some words that we wanted to remember. The just shall live by faith, right? So, life. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Okay? Unbelief leads to sin. Sin leads to deception. 
deception leads to rejection. Now, which direction is the re rejection going? The rejection is towards God and righteousness. Both. Okay? That rejection leads to further unbelief. That's a cycle that happens in the life of the unbeliever. Okay? The just shall live by faith. Faith leads to what? That's what I'm looking for. Obedience leads to witness. Now, this is Marto's witness. This is life witness, not witnessing. Witnessing is included in that. This is a word of being. When life and obedience are joined together, you have being. It is only the wholeness of being, it is the wholeness of being of the Christian that witnesses of the life of God in him. In other words, it is both his inner life, his inner person, and his outer person reflecting the same thing that witnesses Christ to the world. This is righteousness. Sorry to divide that word there. And righteousness leads to increased faith. That's a cycle that happens in the life of a person who's living by faith. The just shall live by faith. When you have something that's alive, it is moving. It's moving. Now, I drew these circles in opposite directions because this moves you day by day. This is the day by day, okay? But the vision is Christ, the picture of God. And so we're looking ahead. The direction we're going is God. This cycle leads us towards hell. So the day-by-day -day cycle, this is representing more than, this is a day-by-day -day cycle. But the progressive overall is the eternal. I want you to have that kind of in your mind as we look at this passage. About the key element of the knowledge of God, I talked about a good bit about knowledge. But as Paul begins this passage and his explanation of the gospel, he begins with the knowledge of God. And he starts in with the human knowledge of God, the human's capacity, the human capacity for us to find and see God. And he places our created purpose at the foundation of his argument for the gospel. Or his, you could say argument. I don't like argument in the sense of, of arguing with one another, but rather his uh, explanation of the gospel. The progressive nature of sin, we see that coming through verses 19 and 20, God reveals himself, man doesn't choose it. Um, verse 24, God gives them up to deception, to uncleanness, that leads to deception. He gives them up to vile affections in 26, and that leads to a wrong understanding of love. And in verse 28, he gives them over to a reprobate mind, which leads to verse 31. And there's several, several things there that I want us to catch without understanding 
there in, in verse 31, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Without understanding, no ability to proper see life, covenant breakers, destroying the foundation of love, without natural affections, they don't care for the things that should be of importance. Implacable means not persuadable. They're, they won't hear, they won't listen, they won't be persuaded of another way. Unmerciful means that they don't have care for the feelings of others. And then the third one, the direction, the directional bent of humanity without God. There's an issue that lies in this passage. It's the issue of desire. And we have to understand the significance of human desire. From the very beginning of the scriptures all the way through, human desire drives so much of what happens. And actually, I would be willing to say, along with other things, that desire is one of the main parts of what generates this movement, your desire. If you take this to the natural, you could say, well, I'm alive, so I want to eat. So I get hungry. So I eat. So it makes me stronger. So I want to eat more. You know, that, that cycle is active in your life because you are alive. And it's driven by what? Your desire for food or your desire to be alive. That's what drives. It's desire that drives that. And so I want, us to, I want us to be aware of that desire as we, as well as we move through this passage. Yes. Is desire singular? Do you have any desire besides hunger? So we can't directly answer that with yes or no. <laughs> but Paul talks about it. So we're going we're gonna to get into it in this, in this book. To hold the truth in unrighteousness, verse 18. To have the truth but not do the right thing about it. I ran across this quote earlier, either this week or last week, recently. Every man seeks for truth, but at the same time flees from it. But as he flees from it, he continues to seek it. Now that sounds contradictory. But it is true. Why do we seek it? Because we are created to know the truth. We're created to know God, right? We're created to know the truth. And you can note that in the next verse. Why does he flee from it? Because in a fallen world, truth is uncomfortable. And if you're going to be a Christian, you might as well forget being comfortable. I'm not just saying that. I mean that. If we're really going to be sold out Christians, we've got to do things that aren't comfortable. We've got to step up to the plate, take our responsibility. We've got to stand before God and minister before Him, like I said in our Sunday school text. We have to open ourselves up say, and say, God, I am willing to do whatever you want me to do. Now, we'll get back to that. Yes. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. So, yes, there is, there is an identification, and, and that actually comes later in the passage. There, we, have an inner, we have an inner sense of truth, an inner sense of what is right that 
is identified by the message of the gospel, by the message of the truth. And one of the things, one of the things that's important is that the word and the spirit both align. So it will not separate from those two. The spirit won't tell us something to do something that the word doesn't tell us to do. But when those are joined together, then there's also an identification of truth with our conscience telling us that it's the right thing. Now the revelation, yeah, well, God's revelation of himself in, in a sense. So looking on, looking on at 19 and 20, so we're talking about holding the truth. In verse 19, the implication is that knowing the truth and knowing God are the same thing. And God shows himself to them. They hold the truth in unrighteousness for they are shown God. Because, not for, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shewed it unto them. So God shows them himself. He shows them the truth and they do not respond to that properly. And then in verse 20, he shows his invisible attribute to the part that we can't see with our eyes through what he created. The first thing that I want to look at in that is the fact that it can be understood, that what God has created can be understood, being understood by the things that are made. The ability of the human mind to connect with the universe and to understand it. That's what I'm trying to get at. Einstein said... The most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. The most amazing thing he's saying about the universe, or unbelievable thing, is that we can actually see and understand what's happening around us, what this world is made of. Einstein was not a Christian, neither was he an atheist, he was a deist. A deist is someone who believes in a God who is unknowable or isn't identified. So to him, that makes the comprehensibleness of our world incomprehensible. But to the Christian, we serve a God who we can know. And so therefore, it is comprehensible that we can comprehend the universe. The understandableness of the universe declares a knowable God. Second, what is created testifies of the ability of the creator. And we know that's true. If someone does a good job at something, we recognize that they have a lot of ability or they have strong ability in that area. When we look at the universe and we see its complexity, its brilliance, its amazing qualities, we can know that there's an amazing God. So both that he is knowable and that he is amazing beyond our, even beyond our comprehension. But in verse 21, it says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So they, they saw, they saw what he had made. And they said, we're still not putting him on that highest place. Not as God means that they did not give him the highest place. The, highest, the thing that you give the highest place is your God. So whatever's the highest place, given in the highest place in your life, that's your God. And these people did not give God the highest place. When they saw him for who he was, they didn't give him that place. Instead, their minds were lifted up and it resulted in the loss of light. And so what does the loss of light do? 
It hinders what we're able to see. Instead of becoming wise, they became fools. Lots of knowledge, but that knowledge led them away from truth, not toward it. So what do you know about John 3? Does anybody have something that's part of John chapter 3? What happens in John chapter 3? 316, thank you. Anything else? Nicodemus. And John 3.16 came as part of the conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, in conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said about being born again, right? So we have the new birth in the first passage. Then we come to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can you keep quoting? Okay, I can't either. So I have it written down. Yep. Very good, Mark. Thank you. So verse 17, He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth not, he but that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so these people glorified Him not as God when He was revealed to them because they loved darkness rather than light, their deeds were evil, and they didn't want to. We don't want to believe in that God. And so they glorified Him not as God. Instead, they exalted themselves, which led to verse 24. The first thing, desire twisted by darkened heart takes control and produces sensual filth. And then verse 25, truth twisted by darkened heart brings us into bondage as slaves to creation. So we will be slaves. We will be slaves either to God or we'll be slaves to creation. And when we glorify Him not as God, we become slaves of creation, created beings. So now I want to read verses 23 through 25. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, through dishonor of their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So I've asked in Franklin to be in charge of some special singing, and I want that message that I just read to be in contrast with the words of this song. We're not willing to say, to live, how great thou art. God allowed their choices, verse 26, to become their love. Lust is never satisfied. And our sexuality is one of the most powerful of our human desires. And when it gets twisted and broken, the generational progression is homosexuality. That's where, it, that's where it goes when it gets broken, when it gets twisted and broken. Homosexuality is part of the progression that begins with adultery. And that fact comes through so clear to me in the past five years taking billboard calls. The process is just time after time when, when sexuality 
broke down several generations ago with divorce and the process and the things that happened to the homes that brought about the changes that we see in our society and today homosexuality has become extremely prevalent in our society and it's because of a progression of sin worsening and worsening as it destroys what God created to be good. It is the budding tree I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, homosexuality is the budding tree of the times that we live in. Do you know what I mean by that? Jesus said, when you see the buds on the tree, you know that spring is near. So you'll know when you see these signs what's coming next. Okay? So when we understand the pattern of life, we begin to understand what's coming next. Verse 28, because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That means a mind that has been shifted completely away from what is right. It cannot under, can no longer understand right. And if you look at verse 31, and I want us to look at the last three. Without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Those three are a recipe for persecution. Without natural affection, no care for the feelings of other humans, implacable, unpersuadable, people who will not be persuaded away from what they believe, and unmerciful, do not care at all about the feelings of others. That's a recipe for persecution. Homosexuality is the budding tree. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to tell you that we need to be serious about our Christian lives today. So that as this process in our society continues to speed up, we will be strong and know the God who we just sang, How Great Thou Art. Verse 32. People know that judgment is coming. This is incredibly clear to me as well. Same source, billboard line. Where are you going, heaven or hell, is the billboard that gets the most phone calls by far. Probably in the 60% of the phone calls range come from where are you going, heaven or hell, billboard. Just about every person that calls in response to that billboard has a sense that they are not right with God on the basis of things that they have done. Am I going to hell because? Am I going to hell for this? And you try to gently help them to understand that what they need to do is learn to know God through Jesus Christ. And it does, we finally, you, if, if it's a good call and you get, to get them to stay on the phone for a little bit, you can get to the place where you can say, and yes, the thing you did is wrong. And it's, it's against you, the knowledge of God. But you can repent just about every time the attitude is, I like my sin, I'm going to keep it. Through knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I've had many, many phone calls coming from 
our good American society where they not only want to keep their sin, but they're happy to promote it to other people. They have pleasure in them that do them. Humanity, apart from God, loves its sin. I'm almost done. The knowledge of God brings us face to face with two things. One, it brings face to face with judgment. The righteousness of God declares judgment on evil. And since we are beings of choice, we also must make judgments. We also must judge. As we know God, so we judge. If we judge him a fool, we will be the fool. We saw that earlier in the passage. If we grow in knowledge of him, we will judge more and more righteously. Through the knowledge of him, we learn to judge rightly, to make righteous judgments. Not that we are judging people and saying, you're going to hell and you're going to hell. No. Rather, making judgments about what matters in life and how to live day by day, how to live the cycle as we know. Second thing it brings us face to face with is worship. They glorified him not as God. They knew God and they glorified him not as God. That is worship. Worship is to lift up. Now it's very easy for us to say that we worship God, but do we really lift him up? And the way that we, now this is, this is, to us here as a church. The way that we present ourselves for worship affects the quality of the worship. Now, I'm not talking about just how we dress. I'm talking about when you come to church, do you come prepared to worship? Do you come with thoughts for the Sunday school lesson? Do you come anticipating meeting God? Are you prepared? And the sense of preparedness that we bring to the collective worship experience enhances or detracts from our trust of one another about our commitment to God. If we come and we find people who are committed to God, it's going to enhance our worship and draw us towards God. If we come and we find people that are casual and don't care about their worship experience, we're going to be drawn away from God. But for the Christian, not just here, but all of life is worship. It is easy to say I worship God because of the things I do. But verse 21, am I thankful? They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Why does that matter? Praise to God, immortal praise, for the love that crowns our days. Note the relational word there. For the love that crowns our days. Bounteous source of every joy, let thy praise our tongues employ. For the blessings of the field, for the stores of the garden shield. For the joy which harvests bring, grateful praises now we sing. Flocks that whiten all the plain, yellow sheaves of ripened grain. All that spring with bounteous hands, scattered o'er the smiling land. All that generous autumn pours from our overflowing stores. These great God to thee we owe, source whence all our blessings flow. So stop right there. Because that's not the end of the poem. That's the end of the lines that we're familiar with, most familiar with. So many of those things we have. Are we thankful? Are you thankful to God for those? Or do you think you deserve them? Let's go on. 
But Lord, should rising whirlwinds tear from the stem its ripening ear, should the fig tree's blossoming shoot drop her green untimely fruit, should the vine put forth no more, nor the olive yield her store, though the sickening flock should fall and the herds desert the stall, should thy holy hand restrain the early and the latter rain, blast each opening bud of joy and the rising year destroy, should the vine put forth no more, nor the olive yield her store, should the rising whirlwinds come and tear the songs, song from out our lungs, yet to thee my soul shall raise grateful vows and solemn praise, and when every blessing's flown, love thee for thyself. Amen. Do you know God?